Father, this morning we rejoice that the miracle of the incarnation, God with us, ended not with the death of Jesus, but the resurrection of Jesus. We exalt Christ this morning because you have exalted Christ above everything, above all rulers and powers, above the universal church, and above those of us who make up Christ's church. Help us today to encounter the risen Lord in your word, and so to be changed. Father, we are grateful for this special occasion, but we do ask that you would draw us to your Son. When he is lifted up, then there is hope. And may that be our experience today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it is a great day to be here in worship together, to be gathered. I appreciate each one who made the effort. Uh, I suspect, you know, that you might be had a good start on your Easter day, got to put on your good clothes, come out in a good spirit, enjoy a time of worship, and then look forward to a good meal someplace, hopefully with some family and some friends and something that's meaningful. But I think it's important that we realize that the first Easter morning was not anything like that for the disciples and those people who were followers of Christ. It was a very different experience. Our text today is Mark 16, and you want to have your Bibles open there. The first three verses I want to look at, I've titled, It's Just After Sunrise, But They Were Still in the Dark. And read with me as we seek to understand what this means. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, They were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Well, here you've got these women. That's how this story starts. Three of them. And they're on their way early that morning to the tomb. And these are the women who had been traveling with Jesus from Galilee and through other experiences, taking care of Jesus, making arrangements, making sure that everything that was needed and necessary was there. And on this day, they're on their way to the tomb. And they start discussing, how's that big stone going to get moved? We can't do it. Are we going to find somebody to do it? And it raises the question, where are the men? Where are the disciples on this morning when these three ladies are marching off to that tomb? Just a bit of a reminder, did they understand what was going on? Mark, which is really a pretty succinct gospel account, records four different occasions when Jesus specifically told them what was going to happen. In chapter 8, it was the first time after persecution started and some people were turning away from Jesus. And then he started telling them directly, I must suffer and I must die, but I will rise again. And Peter, seemingly the spokesman for that group of guys, took him aside and said, Jesus, don't talk like that. You're the king. We're with you. We're going to win this thing. In which case, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. The strongest rebuke in all of scripture. And so the first time the disciples hear what Jesus is planning, they don't get it. Then in chapter 9, Mark again gives us an account. It's after the transfiguration of Jesus. Those three disciples saw the glory of Jesus. 
much more than they had seen, even when he did the miracles and walked on water and broke bread and fed 4,000 and 5,000. And they saw the glory of Jesus. And after that passed, you know, Peter wants to build a tabernacle there, a tent, a place to celebrate this big thing. And Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this until after I've risen from the dead. And so, it says, they discussed that among themselves. What does rising from the dead mean? It wasn't in their playbook that Jesus was going to die and have a resurrection. Their playbook said, the Messiah comes and he is king. And that's all they could figure out. Later in chapter 9, Jesus takes the disciples away to a quiet place and he's careful to go somewhere where others won't even know where they are and press in on them because he wants to tell them again. And he explains that they're going to have to witness his suffering and death and resurrection. And it says in that account, the disciples did not understand, but they were afraid to even ask him what he meant at this point. That's the third time. And then the last account is found in chapter 10. And this is while they're on their way to Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem was the place for suffering. It was the place where the battle was already on with the chief priests and things were difficult. They didn't want to go. They were afraid of dying themselves, but they were not going to abandon Jesus. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus tells them this. The chief priests and the teachers will condemn him to death. Hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. He no sooner finishes telling him that, the single most important event of all of history, and the disciples, two of them, James and John, take that opportunity to kind of get him aside and say, oh Jesus, by the way, we have a favor to ask. We would like to be the ones who get to be on your right hand and your left hand. We want to be first lieutenant and second lieutenant. When you come into your glory, when you are the king, as we know you're going to be, we want the best seats in the house. We want the most power and influence and prestige. Can we have that, Jesus, please? He just told them he was going to suffer and die. And what they're thinking about is, what's in it for us? And they don't get, they do not understand that he's on his way to the cross. And so, he did die. And the question is, where are the men? These women need help moving this big stone. They've prepared the spices. They've done all these other things, but where are the men? And I'll tell you the answer. The men are afraid, the men are confused, and the men are hiding. They're afraid of the Jews. They're not coming out with those ladies. They are in hiding in a room. They love Jesus, and they love being with Jesus. But they did not know that God himself had taken on their battle with death and was sure to win. They were not there to move the rock because they didn't expect the resurrection. What about these women? These particular women are mentioned three times in the space of nine verses. Mark records the following about Mary and Mary and Suomi. He said in verse 40 of chapter 8, sorry, chapter 15, These women who had been serving Jesus and with Jesus and the ones taking care of things, isn't it like it all the time, guys? Let's admit it. People ask, who runs this church? Well, we have a lot of debate about that, but we know who gets the main work done around here. I can tell you that. We guys would be lost without all the women that do so many ministries in our church. It's unbelievable. And that's the way it was in their day. And so, these women who were always taking care of Jesus, they were there at the crucifixion. And it says they watched from a distance as he was brutally and mercilessly crucified. 
And no doubt, their hearts were broken for this one they loved. But as faithful women, it was in their hearts to take care of him yet. What he needs, they were going to do. They wanted to be with him. They didn't abandon him. They didn't run in fear. And so it says in verse 47 of chapter 15, they went to see where they buried him. It was late in the evening, almost the start of the Sabbath. They didn't have much time, but they wanted to take care of Jesus. And their assumption was, we need to do the proper things for a proper burial. But they're going to quickly put him in a tomb because it's almost a Sabbath. So they went to see where Joseph and Nicodemus put the body of Jesus. Now, in essence, they had to get some spices to take care of Jesus because that was part of the embalming process. But on the Sabbath, they couldn't buy spices. Apparently, when they were watching Joseph and Nicodemus, they didn't watch too closely because Nicodemus, that secret believer, brought 75 pounds of spices and used it to prepare Jesus' body when it was buried. But we find then this passage of Scripture here. You see, after the Sabbath was finished, late Saturday night, they went and got spices so that they could go to the tomb first thing Sunday morning. And that's where we find our story. They are on their way to the tomb and they're discussing who is going to move the stone. Now, I want to point out that the women play a very prominent role in this story and you should understand that's extraordinary. I mean, in our culture, and we see everything through our cultural eyes and our experiences. In our culture, we're privileged to have a lot of equality and a lot of understanding of men and women and our different roles and opportunities. But in the first century when this happened, women didn't have a lot of place, to be honest. They weren't trusted. They weren't respected. They did not have the power in terms of religion or politics or business They were very limited. And so the fact that they're playing the main role in our story is in itself extraordinary. And the fact that Mark made it very clear because he mentioned them three times in nine verses is extraordinary. And I would just point out that these women were selected to be the first ones to see the risen Christ. And in essence, this is also how Jesus works. He takes the powerless and reveals himself to them. That is his way. Well, let's look at verse 4. So they're there. They're probably a little bit scared. They're confused. And they are right in the middle of grieving the loss of Jesus. But they're committed to doing their duty. And then this happened. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. They're having this big discussion. We should have brought Peter and some of the buddies. Who's going to move the stone? Do you think there's any chance we can talk the soldiers into it? I doubt that. And in the midst of that, they look up, and the stone, the big stone, is rolled away. Not by them, and certainly not by those soldiers that were there. Not by the disciples who moved the stone. Something very strange is at work here. Something supernatural. Their mourning was taking a big turn. And so these women turned out, again, remember the men are back hiding in a room, afraid. These women were brave enough to enter into the tomb. Now, they didn't have LED lights, right? So it was probably dark in there, and they couldn't see clearly from the outside. So they have to go in and peer to see what's going on and look what they find. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. No kidding. That's what happens when you see an angel. Pretty much every time in scripture. 
When the angel came to Mary, he said, don't be afraid. When he came to all the visitations we see to Daniel and to um, John later on, angels always have to start the conversation that way. Don't be afraid. Get up. It's going to be all right. I've got something to tell you. I'm just a messenger. It's going to be okay. And so the first thing this angel says to these terrified women is, don't be afraid. And that's a, that's a good word. That's something that they needed. Um, but I'm guessing if you saw an angel, you'd be afraid. If something supernatural was happening in your day, way out of the ordinary, you would be afraid. So the experience these women are having that day, this Easter Sunday morning, is that they were terrified. And so he says to them, verse 6, don't be afraid. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. Yep, that's right. We're looking for Jesus. Yep, he was crucified. We saw him. And then they said this. These words that all of human history and cosmic history hinge on. This is what he said to them. He is risen. They came looking for a dead body. They've got their hands full of spices so they can embalm the dead body. And he said, look, this is the right place. This is where he was buried. You're right about that. But he's not here. He's risen. Whoa, that was pretty astonishing news. Mark has such a short and sweet way of expressing things. In chapter 15, when he was talking about the crucifixion, all he says was, and they crucified him. And in this passage, when the women are there and everybody's wondering what's going on, the angel says so simply, he is risen. He's not here. This uh, was pretty amazing. So what do you think you're doing if you're those women? You have your hands full of spices. You're talking to an angel. And the one you came for, the one you love, the one you're grieving, the one your heart is broken over, isn't there. And this angel just tells you he's risen. I'm picturing like stepping out of that tomb and their hands are full of spices and they're probably saying, hey, do you think we can take these back to the store? Can we get our money back? How long will these things last? Can we get them to another funeral? I mean, women are always practical, right, about these things. Who keeps the leftovers at your house? I want to know. But they're having a real experience because they're ordinary people going through what would have been the most extraordinary day of their life. And so then we go to verse 7. This is what the angel said to them. But go... Tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Well, this is big news, gang. This is really big. They came to see a dead body. They came to minister the last rites, this embalming experience for Jesus. And now they're being told to go. And why go? Because Jesus has gone ahead of you. The living Jesus, not a dead Jesus, not the body you were looking for. The risen Lord has gone to Galilee. And you're going to go and you're going to see him. The risen Lord, you're going to see him again. You're going to be with him. Galilee was the place where they had ministered so long with Jesus and the disciples and so faithfully. It was the place where Jesus called the disciples and trained the disciples. It was a place where they had experienced the deepest and richest community. And they were going to get to go back and be there with the disciples and with Jesus. It was also the place where they started getting their marching orders about what they were to do in this ministry of the kingdom of God. And they were going to go back and Jesus was going to go ahead of them. Jesus always goes ahead of us. He went ahead of the disciples into Jerusalem. He went in our place to the cross. And he goes ahead of us into anything he calls us to do. 
That's how it works. That's who he is. And that's what he did that day. Verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, it's helpful for us to be able to look at all four gospel accounts because we get a little broader picture of what happened here. They were afraid. Wouldn't you be? I mean, really? At the same time, the uh, gospel account of Matthew tells us that they went full of joy as well as fear. (gasps) Could it be real? Jesus is alive? We saw him die. Could it be true? We also know that the women were the first ones Jesus showed himself to. And they were able to worship him. And then, interestingly enough, the gospel account, Luke actually reports this, they ran to the disciples. They ran to those men hidden behind those closed doors. And said, hey, got an important word for you. Jesus is alive. And do you know what the men said? The women are crazy. Do you believe what they're saying? We have all this problem on our hands. We're in danger. And our hearts are broken because Jesus died. And now these women are coming back. And they're saying Jesus is alive. Just more trouble. As usual, the women are just losing the plot here. They did not believe the report of these women. Now we know Peter and John ran down there to check out this tomb themselves. All they saw was an empty tomb. They didn't encounter Jesus there as these women had. And so they, again, play this unique role. Well, I want us to understand the significance of this history-turning thing that happened when Christ rose from the dead. And I want to speak specifically right now to those of you that have placed your faith in the work of Christ. What does it mean to us who believe in him, who have repented and believed? Well, it means, for one thing, that the payment for our sins, which we could not pay ourselves, has been paid and accepted as paid in full. The resurrection shows that Jesus satisfied the necessary payment. So if Satan keeps accusing you and saying, well, yeah, Jesus might have loved you and died for you, but he didn't know you were going to do that and that and that. You can remind Satan that Jesus paid it all. God accepted it and proved it in the resurrection. Another encouragement for those of us that are followers of Christ is to understand that the resurrection proves that he didn't just pay a payment for our sin. He conquered sin and death and hell for us. Totally and completely. And when he came back from the grave and the earth shook and people came out of those tombs, it was proof that he had conquered sin and death. There's another really encouraging thing in this passage that Barry read from 1 Corinthians 15 when it says of Jesus, he's the first fruits of the resurrection. Guess what, gang? We're the rest of the fruit. Because he was first, we also are going to experience the resurrection. Now, this screwing old business is a little bit tricky, isn't it? It's actually not all it's cracked up to be. My dad said it was inconvenient to grow old. He was given to understatement. But I want you to understand and think as we reflect on the reality of the risen Lord and the truth of our resurrected Lord, that we can look death right in the eye and say, you're a liar. You do not have the final say where I'm concerned. Because my Lord and Savior conquered death. And he rose again. And because he lives, I will live also. Doesn't mean we can look uh, forward to pain and suffering and there will be real challenges in this whole process. But I'm telling you, believers, hold on to the hope. We're not supposed to go through this life as those who have no hope. Our hope in the resurrection for ourselves is because of the resurrection of Christ. 
And then lastly, for us believers, this whole pattern of Jesus' suffering and death and resurrection is to be the pattern for our living. Too often we're like James and John, just looking for what's in it for us. How can I be prominent? How can people think a lot of me? And Jesus told them when they asked him whether they could be on the right and left side, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve. And that's how it works in my kingdom. And so we will find our greatest freedom when we learn to die to ourselves and to let the resurrected life of Christ be in us. But what does the resurrection mean for those of you who are just visiting this morning? Maybe you came because your family invited you and you wanted to bless your grandmother or somebody. In the first place, thank you for coming. It's a great thing and we're encouraged that you're here. In the second place, I hope you won't think of us as being arrogant or ignorant to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I know that for many of you, it is hard to believe. This sounds like a superstitious story. It sounds like something people want to believe because they love happily ever after stories. But you might be convinced that's not the way the world works. You might have had all kinds of people question whether God's word was trustworthy, whether these counts were really good. I just want to share a couple of things for your consideration today. The first of them is this empty tomb. You see, this was done in front of a lot of people. And Jesus appeared to all the disciples and later to Paul and to up to 500 people as an alive, uh, risen Savior. And if the Jews uh, were able to quiet the disciples or the Romans, they would have done it. It wasn't only about seven weeks until Peter, standing in the capital of the whole nation of Israel, saying, the Jesus you killed, God raised from the dead. I'm telling you, if those Jews could have, they would have gone and gotten a body and said, here's Jesus. What are you talking about? They could not because he is risen. The tomb was empty. And so those disciples, these weak, fearful disciples, what about them? Besides the fact that you have the testimony of this empty tomb, you have these real characters, these men and women who were so ordinary, who became so extraordinary. These men who were just days before hiding behind closed doors in fear, letting the women do this risky work. Only weeks later, they are testifying to the risen Christ. And they get arrested for it. And they are told, you stop telling people that Jesus is alive. And you know what they said? We can't stop telling people Jesus is alive. There's nothing more important. There's nothing more true. We have seen him, and history turns on that, and we have the privilege of saying that message. And they said, if you don't stop, we're going to beat you. And they did. And you know what? They counted a privilege to be beaten and to share in the suffering of Christ, and they would not stop proclaiming. So much so that 10 or so of those disciples gave their life because they wouldn't stop sharing the gospel. They were killed, some crucified, some beaten, many imprisoned, because they would not stop. These fishermen and tax collectors and ordinary guys would not stop proclaiming that Jesus was alive. And then actually they turned the world upside down, this little ragamuffin band, fishermen, tax collectors, people from the outsides of society, from that backwoods place of Jerusalem, 300 years later, all of Rome would be declaring themselves followers of Christ because of the work of these guys. I just implore you, give consideration. There's nothing more important you will ever, ever think about than whether it's true that Jesus is alive. And I implore you this morning, let the Spirit of God touch your heart and speak to you about that. 
Perhaps the church has caused you to stumble about this. And I apologize for that. I think in the church we have a situation where we have perhaps too many big hats for too many big heads. And we like to make much of ourselves. And we like to put on airs. We want to know who's the most prominent. And I know some people that come saying, I'm trying to figure out if Jesus is for real. And then they see all the pomp and circumstance and people's egos and things and sometimes say, I don't get it. Those guys, if Jesus is real, something's wrong with that church. And I just want to apologize and say, we want you to see Jesus this morning in our midst. I will say, you see me in this white robe. It's not because I'm special. I wear this white robe because it shows that I am dependent on the righteousness of Christ and not my own. There's nothing special about me. I will testify to you. I'm just a country boy from Beaver County, Pennsylvania. My dad was a carpenter. But one day, somebody that loved God and loved me enough shared this truth we call the gospel. They told me Jesus loves you so much that he came and died for your sins. He loves you so much that he not only wants to forgive your sins, he wants to call you into a relationship with himself that will last forever. He's planning and preparing a place for those who will believe and follow him. And he invites you by repenting of who and what you are and believing in him and who and what he is to enter into newness of life with him. Somebody told me that story years ago. And by the grace and mercy of God, I believed and I received new life. And you're invited to do the same. This risen Savior this morning is offering himself and life to you. I'm going to close with this illustration of uh, an experience in a cave. One of my first dates with my wife was to go in a cave in Tennessee. And some of you might think, well, she should have had some uh, awareness at that point that this wasn't a very good idea, this relationship. We went into a cave, and this was not one of those commercial caves with guides and ropes and all those things and electric lights in the cave. This was one of those places where you get some buddies and some ropes and some flashlights and you take a backpack with some water and you go crawling through this cave hoping you can remember how to get out once you get in. And it's dark there and it's crazy because the only place your flashlight shows you is right in front of you. And so you bang your head and you don't know what's on your sides and it's kind of a scary thing. And some people don't like the big holes or the things you come to like that or afraid of the bats. The thing I didn't like was those really tight spaces where it gets, where you have to actually get down in your belly and crawl in the dirt to get through and the ground is touching you all around. That's a little bit what it was like for the disciples. They're going through this cave process with Jesus. They were confused. They did not understand what he was up to. They thought it was going to be great, and it kept getting narrower and narrower, and they were getting hard-pressed, and it was difficult, and they got fearful. And at some point, they thought, if we can just get out of here alive, if we can just find our way back, that would be good. But they kept trying to follow Jesus and follow Jesus and follow Jesus. And then Jesus died. And they did not know how they were going to get out of that cave They did not know where any hope was in their story. They were hiding behind closed doors in Jerusalem because they were afraid. But then, if you go back to this cave illustration, it's as if when Jesus arose, the lights came on in the cave. And there wasn't a way back to the past. There was a way to something brand new. Life in Christ. Something more glorious than they could understand. And I'm telling you, it changed those men forever. And my prayer is, church, the risen Christ, that he will change us forever. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful again just for your mercy and for what you did in Christ. 
And Father, this morning we celebrate the risen Lord. He is alive. And we are so thankful for all he did for us. And Lord, I do ask for each and every person here this morning that you would take this truth of the resurrection, this truth that we have a living Christ here in our midst, in this room this morning, and burn it in our hearts so much so that we'll be like those disciples. We will be changed. And we won't stop proclaiming this truth until Jesus comes. We make that our prayer in his name. Amen.